Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 26. And we got through some of chapter 26 last week. If you remember, we saw Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah. And they're a great big happy family, aren't they? You know, we see these accounts of them and they're just little snippets of their lives. You know, just a day here, a day there, bad days, really. And they get put into a bestseller and translated into hundreds of languages. And it's the most printed book in the whole entire world. And these are the days that we have of this family. So how would you like it if your worst days were recorded? You know? So that's where we are. We saw Esau selling his birthright as the firstborn son to his younger brother, Jacob, right? And Jacob allowed that, and Esau traded that birthright for a bowl of beans. Now, as we come into the latter part of chapter 26, we see that chapter 26 is the only chapter we have where Isaac stands alone. He's mentioned in several other chapters, but chapter 26, he's not mentioned with his father Abraham or Esau and so on. He stands alone. The only chapter. And what is he doing in chapter 26? As we look, we see he's digging wells. Isaac is a man of the well. Seven times in scripture, we see Isaac pictured by a well. And here he's unclogging the wells of his father, Abraham, that the Philistines had filled with dirt. At the end of Genesis 21, Abraham made a covenant with an earlier Abimelech that they would effectively align as allies. But by the time that Isaac comes around, it seems that the covenant is not well respected by those Philistines because they've gone around filling in these wells that Abraham and his servants had dug. There's not that mutual respect anymore. Because of that covenant that Abraham made with Abimelech and the Philistines, and because Isaac had inherited the right to those wells from his father, he could have easily staked a claim to them. But he chose not to. He chose to live peaceably instead of making conflict. From the fact that Abimelech asked Isaac to move away, and it actually gives us the reason because his household was mightier than that of the Philistines, because of that, we can assume that Isaac could have successfully defended his wells using force, yet he chose not to. Possibly to maintain good rapport with the Philistines. He just chose to move away to avoid any further conflict here. Let's look, start reading in verse 17. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. That's right after Abimelech kicks him out of Gerar because he's too mighty. He starts feeling uncomfortable. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. 
Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, the third well now, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now, a well is an interesting picture. It's an interesting construct in the Bible. Physically, at that day and age, wells were a source of life for people. Water was a prized resource in the Middle East, and it still is. And that's probably why the herdsmen of Gerar fought with Isaac over the wells that he found. They needed that water. But even beyond their physical significance, these wells signified blessing and establishment in a place. And the fact that Isaac is so often pictured in connection with a well is significant to us because God is establishing the nation of Israel through Isaac and ultimately through Jacob and his progeny. Establishment. And finally, we come to verse 22, and it says that Isaac finds a place to dig a well that the herdsmen don't quarrel with him over. So he's off in the distance far enough from Gerar that those herdsmen allow him to live there. Verse 23, then he went up from there to Beersheba. So evidently he's leaving several of his men and some of his herds in that place at Rehoboth. And then he goes up there even further to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, Isaac, built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. They dug another well. So he built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord. That's exactly what his father had done so many times. That was Abraham's calling card, building an altar and calling on the Lord. And I want to zoom in on Isaac, unclogging those wells of his father, redigging them, revitalizing them, letting the water flow through them again. Because in the church, we're living in a time when the wells of our fathers are being filled in. There is a well that purifies the sins of the world, the blood of the Lamb. But there are establishments who call themselves Christian churches that shovel dirt in the well of blood, making blood, sin, and repentance taboo topics, bad words in the church. Those are the wells 
that our fathers had dug. Those are the wells that we should be redigging, revitalizing. We should be putting those things in the church, not taking them out. And the responsibility to dig out these wells now falls on us. The well of substitutionary atonement. The well of salvation by faith. The well of repentance and the well of Christ's deity have begun to be filled in. And without these things, we are nothing. The Christian gospel is ineffective without these important topics. The gospel is effectively stripped of its power. Just think about it. If Christ didn't really die, and he was not raised on the third day, then he has not conquered death. And he has not made a way of salvation for us. And our faith has no basis in reality because there is no life and no forgiveness to be found in him. If those things did not happen, and if we lose sight of those things, without the blood of Christ, we are still dead in our sins and eternally separated from God. And these are things that people are trying to take out of the church to make people feel good. It's time for the church to reclaim the wells of our fathers. We don't need to figure out how to do ministry cool. We know how Jesus did ministry. It's recorded. And he wasn't always the nicest. He said he came to divide. He divides along the lines of truth. We know how the apostles and the first century church did ministry. It's recorded. It's time we returned to that model for ministry. And when presented in its true light, the gospel has teeth. It's powerful. And Paul even defines the gospel for us. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, there are three elements to the gospel proper. This is the gospel in its most succinct form. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you which, you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, and that he was buried. Three, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel as defined by Paul. The three elements. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Not the New Testament, the Old Testament. Two, he was buried. He died and was buried. Three, and Paul would argue, and he does in the rest of that chapter, this is the most important of the three. Christ rose again on the third day. And again, he says, according to the scriptures. 
That's the message we should be telling the, the world, both by our words and our actions. That's the gospel. And if we do not keep the gospel in the church, in the pulpits, and in our lives, we will be rendered useless. We can't do anything of ourselves. We can't do anything apart from this message. This is where life is. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let's make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Now, remember Abimelech had kicked Isaac and Rebekah out of his land. But also remember that Isaac came in and lied to Abimelech. He said, oh, Rebekah, she's my sister, just like his dad had done. Abimelech sent him out without harming him, his wife, or any of his family. And that is good for him. Because if he had harmed them, certainly harm would have come to him. And I don't really know what to think of this. You know... Abimelech now comes to Isaac and tries to be all buddy-buddy, right? He comes to him, he says, hey, let's make a peace treaty, in effect, and let's be allies. Right after kicking him off of his land, sending him out into the wild, into the desert. But Isaac's reaction is what puzzles me. And truly, I think that it's something we can learn from. Isaac accepts Abimelech's bid for peace. Maybe he understood that God would deal with him as he sees appropriate. And much, much later, Paul would write in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Isaac may have lived by this godly principle long before Paul took the pen to the page. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's something we can all take note of. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Now, this same place, Beersheba, was named by Abraham years before. And that was when he and the earlier Abimelech, different people, Abimelech is just a title, they swore an oath there. And Beersheba means well of an oath. Isaac is honoring his father 
and the promises God made to him by calling this place the same name that his father gave it, Beersheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Of course, that was when Moses was writing this. And then verse 34 and 35 really go along conceptually with chapter 27, talking about the wives of Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. That's some great family dynamics. <laughs> they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. These were Canaanite women. And the bent of Esau's character to the more carnal things is further established by this fact that he took himself Canaanite wives. Not just one, but two. He surely knew how careful God had been to select a wife for his own father from outside of the Canaanites. His father sent his servant far away to the land of Abraham, to fetch him a bride. And he seems to have, at the very least, disregarded God's wish for separation from the Canaanites. That is Esau. And at the worst, he's gone knowingly against God's will. The fact that this was no small matter is shown by the displeasure of his parents. They really don't like these ladies. And even Isaac, who loved Esau dearly, was grieved by this decision. And it wasn't a, a matter of youthful desires on Esau's part. In fact, it says he was 40 years old. Since Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah had Esau, Isaac must now be at least 100 years old when his son marries these women. In this chapter, in chapter 26, Isaac is truly depicted as a spiritual man with eyes on the prize. He loved to be alone with God. He was opening the wells of his father, and he returned to the place he held dear, Beersheba. But, unfortunately, in chapter 27, we get a very different and a very sad picture of Isaac. He's grown old, and it seems that his fervor may be fading into apathy. And his care for the promise of a blessed line of descendants is questionable. Genesis chapter 27. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Verse 1 of chapter 27 opens with, Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. You know, Isaac's age now at this point 
is estimated about 135 years old. His eyesight is beginning to fail him. When he could not see that he called Isaac his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, we actually know that Isaac was not as close to his death as he seems to have thought. He'll actually live to the age of 180 years old. We find that in Genesis 35, 28. So he's not as close as he thinks he is, but he's still an old man with old eyes. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food, such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now here's the big, glaring problem with this. Isaac knows that the blessing should be going to Jacob and not Esau. Yet, he purposes to give it to Esau. That's a big problem. And I don't think that you can make a good case saying that Isaac was ignorant of that prophecy God delivered to Rebekah, saying that the older would serve the younger. That's God's will. That's his purpose, is that the the older should serve the younger. I don't think you can say that Isaac was ignorant of that. He knew his blessing belonged to Jacob. Yet, we know that Esau was his favorite, and he always tended to favor Esau. And Isaac still sought to deliver that blessing to Esau, even in spite of Jacob's further legalization of his claim to that blessing because he had purchased the birthright. Even in spite of the spiritual aspect and knowing that his son Esau was more carnally minded and Jacob was more spiritually minded, even in spite of these things, the blessing he wanted to give to Esau. So he asks him to go out and bring him back some venison. And personally, I think that this is Isaac's attempt at rationalizing his decision. He just wants something that he can hold on to that says, well, this is the reason I blessed Esau. He's looking for anything he can, and he loves venison. So he sends him out to get venison, he brings back the meat, and he thinks, ah, oh, that's, that's just it. It's kind of like numbing his conscience with meat, right? I don't know if you've ever done that before. I've certainly eaten too much sometimes, but that's, a, that's another level. I think that's effectively what he's trying to do. But take note here also that Isaac is doing this without Rebecca's knowledge. He keeps this from his wife. Verse 5 says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah overheard what Isaac was saying, but she wasn't included in the conversation. He must have known that she would disapprove. Why else would he not have included his wife? So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, 
saying, Indeed, I hear your father speak to Esau, your brother. And of course, her first reaction is to run to Jacob and tell him all that she's overheard. Just imagine this is your worst day in your family's history, you know? And this is what is recorded. Eavesdropping, then running off and gossiping to your other family members. And this is ridiculous. You can make a reality TV show out of this. This is the day that we have recorded because it was impactful. And unfortunately, often the worst days are the most impactful. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. So Rebekah lays out this plan of deception for her son Jacob to take part in. Surely she knew the risk of alienating her and Jacob from the other two. But she accepted that risk. She knew what it was going to bring. Her plan was deceitful. But the result of her plan is what God purposed. This is really interesting. So there's this strange instance where God honors the outcome of her actions, Jacob receiving the blessing, but that doesn't mean that he approved of the process. Of course, he wouldn't approve of Jacob lying to obtain the blessing. Lying is not good, yet he honors the result. Very, very interesting. But since we know the outcome was honorable, Jacob or God wanted Jacob to have the blessing, and that's what he had purposed in his heart, and Isaac was trying to thwart that plan. Can we at least give Rebekah and Jacob's motives the benefit of the doubt? Can we at least assume their motive in this was to accomplish God's will for the family and for their line? Can we make that assumption? This might explain why God never rebukes either Rebekah or Jacob for these actions. We don't have any rebuke in Scripture of, I, of Jacob or Rebekah. However, God does rebuke Esau harshly because he despised his birthright. He didn't care for spiritual things. I do think that Jacob especially gets a bad rap in the modern church. We see his name is heel catcher, and he likes to trick people, and that's what we focus on. Yet, this is the man who God uses to bring about the nation Israel. 
changing Jacob's name to Israel. God honors this man. There's something that he sees in him that he loves. Scripture says, God loved Jacob, but he hates Esau. We do need to be careful when we're approaching this issue of Jacob because he is honored. Now, that's not to excuse his actions. He was deceitful, although the root of the plan comes from Rebekah, right? Rebekah was so intent on following through with this that she's willing to receive any curse that might fall on Jacob. In verse 11, it says, And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get them for me. Referring to those goats. When Jacob says, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, that word deceiver seems to more accurately mean mocker. He was afraid that he would be seen as mocking his father's blindness for taking advantage of it. Verse 14, and he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And the word there, his hands, means all the way up to his elbows. So it was quite a a hairy arm there at that point. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. Now, the fact that Isaac could not tell the difference between Esau's venison and Jacob's goats tells us two things. One, Rebecca was a great cook. She could really work with those ingredients. And number two, it must not have just been the taste of the venison that made Isaac love Esau. There must have been something in the manly skill that he exhibited, the pride that he afforded his father in thinking, my son can hunt. He's an outdoorsman. He's brawny. He's hairy. And he's a man. That must have been at least an element to it. Verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? He knows it's one of his sons, but he's confused as to which one it is. There's a little twinge. Hey, there's something wrong here. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. There are several lies packed into this one little phrase that Jacob delivers to his father. I am Esau, your firstborn. That's a lie. I have done just as you told me. That's also a lie. Please arise, sit and eat of my game. That's a lie. That your soul may bless me. 
But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He says, you've never gotten back with a deer this fast. What's going on? Jacob said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. That's a lie. And now he ropes God into it. It's a good idea not to bring God into your lies. It's just a good rule of thumb to live by. Not a good move from Jacob. Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. The level of hairiness on this man is unlike anything I've personally seen. His mother straps goat skins on his arms and on his neck. And to Isaac, that feels like Esau. I'm done with that picture. We'll move on. (laughs) Are you really my son Esau? Come here. I'll eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said. Isaac's hearing was the only sense of his that did not fail him. He knew the voice belonged to Jacob. He knew there was something fishy about this whole deal. And likely the guilt of knowing that he was trying to do something against God was probably weighing on him too, making him uneasy about the situation from the very start. His hearing was the only sense that did not betray him. He knew the voice belonged to Jacob, but Jacob felt like Esau. The food tasted like Esau's venison. Jacob smelled like his brother because he wore his clothes. And Isaac couldn't see him at all. All of his senses betraying him, but his hearing. It's interesting to see how in the Bible, seeing and hearing are spoken of. It's a consistent theme that the enemy takes hold of us through the eyes. And the word of God takes hold through the ears. Really interesting if you want to dig into that. And just as a springboard for you, if you want to look into this. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. On the other side of it, the hearing, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And I'll leave you with that, but very interesting. If you look for it, you'll find it. Often the eyes are the gate that the enemy uses to get to us. The ears are where we receive the word of God. Really interesting. Verse 27, 
This is the blessing that Isaac pronounces on Jacob unknowingly. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Notice that he starts off with the material things. That's what Esau would have wanted to hear, right? He blesses him materially first. Therefore, may the God may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Now, the next part is directly opposed to the prophecy God delivered to Rebekah all those years ago concerning her sons. Of course, he doesn't know this is Jacob, so he's trying to oppose God here. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. That is directly against what God delivered to Rebekah, saying the older shall serve the younger. He's trying to go against that. That speaks directly to Isaac's desire for Esau to rule over Jacob. And the reason Esau was his favorite? Because he loved his meat. He loved to eat the venison and probably had pride over what he could do. And finally, Isaac is going to transmit that spiritual blessing that was first bestowed on Abraham. He says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. That is the spiritual inheritance that God had intended for Jacob. Isaac pronounces this blessing, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. So God's purpose was ultimately fulfilled in imperfect people and imperfect circumstances. The blessing of that spiritual inheritance was pronounced on Jacob, and that's what Jacob was really after. He wasn't after the material side of this, like Esau was. This spiritual inheritance was pronounced on Jacob, but at what cost to his family? We naturally wonder what would have happened had Isaac have actually blessed Esau. We don't know. We can only speculate. But the fact is, this all played out, and God's will was done in the process. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Oh no. And this is why Jacob was so nervous, because Esau could have come back into the room at any moment and disrupted this whole plan. As soon as Jacob goes out, Esau comes in. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. 
Now, we've talked about it really early in our Genesis study. That word soul is nefesh. And it's accurately translated soul in English. It speaks of the innermost being of a man. And so there's a emphasis that Isaac's soul is doing this blessing. It's a deep part of him that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Isaac is seeing what just happened. His eyes are being opened, figuratively. And he understands the gravity of the situation. All these emotions are flooding his mind so that he trembles exceedingly. And that phrase is even more graphic in the Hebrew language. It would read in Hebrew something like, Isaac trembled most excessively with a great trembling. There must have been a million emotions. He must have been feeling anger with Jacob, concern for Esau, grief for his wife's deception, resentment for having his own plan spoiled, and probably most of all, probably the most intense of these realizations was that he had brought judgment on himself for ignoring the will of God. He felt guilty. He knew he had had the wrong intentions in this. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into this situation. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17 say, Lest there be any fornicator, fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That is, he sought the blessing as it related to the material possessions, diligently with tears. And this is not talking about repentance as we would normally use the word in church. This is not a repentance of sins, not a forgiveness of sins. And it shouldn't be taken that way because that's not what it was written to convey. Rather, Esau was weeping bitterly and asking his father to bless him also. But Isaac couldn't retract that blessing from Jacob. And by this point, I have a feeling that he knows what he tried to do was wrong. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, look, 
he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Esau brings out the significance of Jacob's name here. And he connects it to this event. Jacob, Jacob, literally means one who takes another by the heel. More succinctly, heel catcher. If two men are racing and one reaches and trips the other by the heel, the one in the back supplants or takes the place of the one in the front. That's the meaning of this name. He's a heel catcher. He trips him up. He supplants. Esau's saying, this is what Jacob did to him twice. Turns out, that's not quite true. Esau messed up. Esau despised his birthright. He sold it to Jacob for a bowl of lentils. Jacob didn't deceive Esau then. The terms were agreed upon. You sell me your birthright, I give you a bowl of lentils. Esau didn't care for the spiritual things. He traded that, he made that trade with Jacob. And Isaac in verse 35 said to Esau that Jacob had taken away your blessing. That's not quite true either. It was Jacob's blessing all along. God had purposed to give that blessing to Jacob, but Isaac tried to take it from Jacob. Now, the way Jacob secured that blessing wasn't right, but it was his in God's eyes. Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do for you now, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now Esau isn't the kind of guy that you'd expect to see crying like a baby. But here he does. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now this is no doubt a tough pill for Esau to swallow. He thought he was about to be blessed by his father, And now he turns around and he's cursed. He comes back to this. And there's something we need to look at. The New King James and the King James translates this as, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth. The fatness of the earth speaks of a very fertile part of the earth. But the words away from, are indicated by the Hebrew text, and their inclusion would help us better understand that this is not a blessing, but in fact a curse. His dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth. And that 
changes how we perceive this dialogue. And this was fulfilled for his posterity, the Edomites, who dwell in the rugged region that became known as Edom. They dwelt away from the fatness of the earth. And fulfillment of the rest of Isaac's pronouncement can also be seen in the Edomites. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. This people group, the Edomites, generally lived in violence. By your sword you shall live, and lived in subjugation to Israel, and you shall serve your brother. They would also go through bouts of restlessness where they would try to shake the yoke of Israel off. Until David's time, they remained mostly independent. But after King David and on, they pretty much stayed under the yoke of Israel until they just dissolved completely as a nation. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Just a day in the life. Esau realized his dad's death was drawing near. So he wants to wait until his father passes to kill his brother. Very considerate, isn't it? And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Now, of course, Rebecca would be concerned for her son Jacob's safety. She instructs him to take refuge in the house of Laban. Now, remember, Laban is her brother. Now, this is really sad. It's really sad. She tells Jacob to stay with Laban for a few days until Esau's fury turns away, until he calms down and no longer wants to harm his brother. But Jacob will be there at Laban's house for over 20 years. And Rebekah will never see her son again in this world. That's it. She sends him away in fear and never sees him again. What a sad turn of events. At the end of verse 45, she says, Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Now, she seems to already count Esau as gone. She's lost Esau, effectively. And I think that she knew she lost his trust from the very outset of this whole ordeal. Probably her husband's as well. She couldn't bear the thought of losing both her sons in one day. How sad is it when we get in our own way 
when we try to do something in our flesh and we just end up falling over ourselves. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, that is, Esau's wives. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? We know that Rebekah was from the land of Abraham, Padan Aram, and that's where Jacob will go to find his wife. She wasn't from Canaan, where they were living. But Esau, the more carnally minded of the two, took wives from the daughters of Heth, the Hittite. And the Hittites were descended from Canaan. So they were all Canaanites. And with few exceptions, the Canaanites were pagans and unbelievers. It seems that Rebekah experienced so much friction with Esau's wives that she counted her life as not worth living if Jacob also took wives from the Canaanites. This is some, again, poor family dynamics. We know that Isaac was no fan of them either, probably for a lot of the same reasons, but he was probably most concerned with setting Jacob up to carry the promises of God that were made to his family. And to do that, he would need an upstanding, believing wife. This is true for us today. Gentlemen, the woman you marry is either going to push you closer to Christ or pull you further from him. Ladies, the same is true of your husband. Your spouse will either become your ministry or assist you in ministry. And there really is not much in between. And Rebecca couldn't stand the thought of Jacob her beloved Jacob, being hindered by a woman from Canaan, from the world. Now in chapter 28, thankfully, Isaac seems to snap back to his senses. He's done with this whole business of going against God. Didn't work out for him anyways. He also delivers a genuine blessing to Jacob, one that he knows he's giving to Jacob. And it seems to come from his heart. Jacob travels to Padan Aram to find a wife. And he has a remarkable experience on his way there. And that's where we'll pick up next week in chapter 28. Let's close this morning's study in a word of prayer. Thank you.